and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity cause our faith to rise cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority words of power that can never fail let their truth prevail over unbelief speak O lord and renew our minds help us grasp the heights of your plans for us true sun chains from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity and by grace will stand on your promises and by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Isn't that awesome? So I want you to take a look up here at the stage um, because this is something that is very special to us as a church. And this right here matters so much to what we do in our faith and in our walk with Christ. And their life, the reason we just sang that song, because we pray that God will continue to speak through our church to the generations that will come. So a couple of weeks ago, these kids right here, and David, if you go ahead and start showing those pictures, um, served for a night. And they shared with you a banquet um, for our 60-plus, our sweethearts banquet. If you just want to run through them, David, and kind of show. But these kids had such an incredible servant heart that I think exemplifies what Christ is doing in their life and in this world. And so as you, you look at these pictures, as we're running through those, I want all of these kids to stand up. If you 
could y'all stand up for a second? And I want us to give them a round of applause. And I want to say something. All the kids, look at me. Look at me. I want to say something to you. Thank you for serving. And thank you for being Jesus to us. Because you show us what it looks like to have a servant heart when you do things like this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So we want to show you a little video. And y'all can sit back down for just a second. We're going to show a video that's going to have some of y'all in it. Okay, so if y'all want to watch the screen... to keep my degrees, keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 11, 1920. Trust in the Lord with your heart and lean not on your honors. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing of psalm of praise. Psalms 47, 7 through 8. Father Abraham, how many sons, how many sons of Father Abraham? I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just face our war. What? Abraham, we believe God from him for free. God told um, 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 Jonah to go to Nema. But, but he did not want to go. And then what happened? God um, led a storm. And then he drove him in the water. And then a big um fish swallowed him in his tummy. And, and, and he spit him out. And then he went to Nineveh. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4.3 There is power. In the name of Jesus, there is power. Power name is name. In the teaching room, to the name of God wisdom, power, and
going to do is we want to ask you to serve them. Um, They are so important to us as a church. And so these kids are going to get some cards, and they're going to walk through the aisles. Let me have my stuff real quick. Excuse me. Okay. They're going to walk through the aisle, and if you would like to teach or help on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, whatever age group, we will train you, we will help you, we will put you in the position where you can do that. But we need, as a church, as this family, to share our life with these kids. And so they're going to be getting these. They're going to pass them to you on the way out. So grab one from them as they walk through these aisles. And you can, Beth, what do you want them to do with them? Um, they'll be back in the, in the circle table. So on the circle table, when you walk out this morning, you can put it on there with your name and where you would help serve. Um, we will help you in every way possible to do that. So thank you, kids. It's always a bit chaotic, but this is what we need to be about, this generation of kids. That's mine. So a a question for you as we begin this morning... um, have you ever had a relationship that went bad? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a marriage or a dating relationship, but have you ever had a relationship that maybe didn't go the way you thought it would? Maybe a friendship, maybe it was a dating relationship, maybe it was a marriage, maybe it was a friendship, maybe it was an employer, employee relationship, but for some reason the relationship did not work out the way that you thought it would. Let me have a show of hands. Okay, hey, people in the back talking. Every hand on this would probably be right. And and has anyone not had a relationship that just didn't go bad? (laughs) Every single one of us have had relationships that for some reason or another did not work out, that, that were difficult. I remember really early in our marriage, one of the very first arguments we had, and I asked my wife if I could tell this, because it was kind of, this was the most heated argument we had, I think have had probably, and it started out as a joke. We were laying in bed one night, we were talking, we had just found out we were pregnant and we were going to have a son named Ryan, Um, it really turned out to be a daughter named Gracie, and as we were lying in bed talking, Cammy goes, I would love to get a camouflage onesie so that we can get a picture of him hunting with my dad. And we, we were joking the whole time, and so I said, we're not going to dress my son in some redneck outfit. Let me tell you, it did not go well. And then she says, well, we're certainly not going to dress him in some sissy boy city outfit. 
And all of a sudden, the tension escalated. And the relationship was hit this, this brick wall where it was like, wait, wait, wait. And both of us went to bed angry at one another. We, we were mad. And it started out something so simple, just kind of joking around, that quickly escalated. And everyone has probably been in a situation where a relationship um, escalated. And things that you thought were going to happen did not happen. And there was this struggle or this tension, whether it was in your marriage or the person you were dating or it was at work or it was in a friendship, but this relationship was in some ways fractured. And then you're left with, well, how do we get things back to where they should be? How do we restore that unity? And someone asked recently, well, why do we need to talk about unity so much? Well, one, because Paul talks about it a awful lot throughout the book of Ephesians. I would say next to being in Christ, it's his main theme. Here's what it means to be in Christ. It means to live in unity with one another. And so we need to talk about it. The other reason we need to talk about it is not just necessarily because of what's happening in here. The real reason we need to talk about it is because what's happening outside of these walls. Because if you remember back at the start of Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul lays out this grand vision for what Christ is doing through the cross and through the resurrection in this world. That he is bringing all things to unity under Christ Jesus. And when he says all things, he's not referring to just all things here in this body. He's referring to all people in all times and all places everywhere. That that is what Christ is doing. He is joining this world together and creating unity. And so as his followers who live in him, we are people who are trying to restore that unity to all things in Christ Jesus. And so unity matters. It matters within these walls. It matters immensely outside these walls. And what I want to do just really quickly this morning is walk you through four relationships that are so critical through this book. And he's going to address, after he's kind of gotten the theology ground floor, the foundation laid, he's going to say, here's how these relationships play out. And there's four relationships that we're going to look at. The relationship with the church, the relationship of a marriage with husband and wife, the relationship between parents and children, and the relationship of slaves and masters. And so I want to walk through those really quickly with you, and then I want to point out these themes that flow out really quickly from Ephesians. So we're going to start chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, and he sandwiches that passage, that verse, right here in the context of relationships with one another. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? 
when you create conflict, when you create otherness, when you create separation and division between the body of Christ. And then he ends this little segment in verse 21. And, and different commentators and different writers are going to put this with a different section. But I think it definitely probably goes with this section about how you treat one another in the church. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do you relate to one another as a church? You submit to one another as you submit to Christ. That's the foundation of this relationship. Then he goes on to to verse 22. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There is this responsibility in the relationship from the wife to the husband who is the head. Now, listen, he refers and points out the headship of Christ, not the lordship of Christ. There is a reason. It is significant because the head is connected to the body. And the head cares for the body. How how do you use this headship? You use this headship as Christ used his headship. He served the needs of the church. And as he served the needs of the church... The church submits to his will. And so he does not use it in this oppressive, authoritarian way. He uses it as a servant to meet the needs. Listen to what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. See, a lot of times we start to think that as the head, the husband is the one that is to be served, that it's the wife's responsibility to serve me. But what Christ did as the head was he served his bride, the church, to the point that he gave his life for her because that is what his bride needed. See, there's this mutual submission that happens in the relationship. That we submit to the needs of one another, whether in the church or in marriage, because it is what the other needs. And then he goes on and he says, Children, verse 1 of chapter 6, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, you have a responsibility to be obedient to your parents. Hey, kids, we listening? Children have a responsibility of obedience to their parents. And parents have a responsibility to their children to bring them up, not just to know the rules, not just to do right, not just to change behavior, but to teach them to know who Jesus is and to follow him and submit to him. And one of the most important ways you do that, parents, is through the way that you live your life. Because regardless of what you say, they see. Regardless of what you say is important, they see what is important. And so there is a responsibility on the parent's side to teach them to follow Jesus. And then the the one that's going to probably give the most problems to people is the slave and master relationship. And you think, okay, well, does Paul want us to have slavery? Well, no. But what Paul is doing is he is having trouble imagining a world where slavery does not exist. And because there is this world where slavery, he doesn't think, cannot exist, he talks about what this relationship should look like from the perspective of someone who is following Jesus. And if you think, well, that's ridiculous, a world without slavery, it's here. You realize that today there are about 30 million people that still live in slavery. There is about 20 million of those who are caught up in sex trafficking. And they are used and exploited for what they can offer. Paul has trouble imagining this world without slavery. And so he says, well, okay, if slavery is a part of this world, if you're going to follow Jesus, here is what this relationship must look like. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of God doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anybody does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And then he says, masters, do not, or do the same to them and stop threatening knowing that He who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no penalty or partiality with him. And so he says, here's these relationships, these critical relationships between the church, 
relationship between husband and wife and a marriage, parent and child, and then slave and master. These critical relationships. And see, here's what you need to understand. In your life, when you get to the end, who you are as a person is the sum total of the relationships that you have had. When we point back and we look at your life, and recently, did you see this obituary in the last couple of weeks of this guy who died in Galveston? The daughter writes this eulogy or this obituary about her father. And he said, his life served no obvious purpose. He did not contribute to society or serve his community. And he possessed no redeeming qualities besides quick-witted, sick sarcasm, which was assuming during his sober days. With Leslie's passing, he will be missed only for what he never did, being a loving husband, father, and good friend. And you read that, and it is like so sad. Like, how can you miss on your relationship with one another so badly that someone could write that when you're gone? But in the end, what people will say about you is going to be a a composite of all of the relationships that you have had. The relationships you have had with friends, the relationships you have had here in our church, the relationships you have had with your spouse, with your children, with the people who worked for you, the people you worked for. Your, Your life is a sum total of the relationships that you have been involved in. And so what is the DNA that makes up a healthy relationship? How do do we have successful relationships with one another, with our spouse, with our children, with the people we work with, the slave-master relationship? How do we have healthy relationships with one another? I think there's four things that kind of run throughout all four of these relationships that Paul talks about. The first is grace received. Grace received. That Jesus modeled this. Grace received because God sustained him here on earth. And what Paul says early on in Ephesians is it was God that raised Jesus from the dead that he had to rely selflessly on someone outside of himself to do what he could not do. Because I believe entering into death, he was kind of at that point of no return where he says, once I go here, I am not capable of raising myself back. Once I go to this place, now I am relying on God to raise me from the dead. And so the core, the center of our relationships is grace received. That you have received grace from God through Jesus Christ and it should radically change your life. Because in that you realize your reliance on someone else. What that creates in us is this sense of humility this sense of humility. See, humility is a matter of perspective. 
It's how you see the world. It's how you see yourself. We like to see ourselves as someone who can do everything for ourselves. That we're capable of saving ourselves. That we're capable of being good enough. But humility, genuine humility, is rooted in God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's this understanding that we are not able to save ourselves and that only God can. And it places us to where we understand this need and this desire that we have to be right. One of the the best-selling authors, Seth Godin, says you must liberate yourself from the need to be right. And the reason that he says this is because with the need to be right comes your need for others to be wrong. It's not enough just for me to be right. I need others to know that they're wrong. And you see, there's this roadblock for us to humility, and it's pride. It's our pride that keeps us from being humble Christ followers. It's our pride that keeps us saying that we can do it for ourselves, that we can save ourselves, that we're capable of making it on our own. Humility, though, is a discipline. Humility is a spiritual discipline. It is something that we have to remind ourselves of day after day. Think about all of the relationships in your life that have gone wrong. For how many of those was pride on the part of one party or the other? One of the biggest stumbling blocks in the relationship. It's this spirit of humility that drives healthy relationships. And what that humility allows us to do is to be vulnerable. See, healthy relationships require vulnerability. Healthy relationships require vulnerability. In the garden... When Adam and Eve sinned, the very first thing they felt was their nakedness. They felt their vulnerability. And so they grabbed fig leaves to cover themselves up. What fig leaves allow us to do is to control what others see. We like to have control of what others see. We don't like being vulnerable. We don't like putting ourselves out there. Because when we experience that vulnerability, we're afraid. It's fear that keeps us from being there. And there is no place that vulnerability is more on display than through the cross. To be nailed to a cross, outstretched arms with no clothes, 
hanging on a hillside. There is no more vulnerable of a position than you could be put in. And the purpose of the cross for the Roman Empire was to create shame. And it's that fear of shame that keeps us from being vulnerable with one another. But yet we have to experience vulnerability if we hope to have intimacy. We have to experience vulnerability when we're hurt. When you're waiting on the doctor to call with the diagnosis. When the boss calls and says you're job and your services are no longer needed. There is this spirit of vulnerability that we feel because we feel exposed. And when we feel exposed, we start searching for fig leaves because we want to control what other people can see. We're afraid of what they might find out if they saw who we really were. And then the fourth of these healthy relationships is grace given. See, it's not just about what you receive. It's about what you give as well in the relationship. Because Christ showed as he received this grace that he could be this humble person, that he could be vulnerable to to provide what the world needed. But in doing so, it was grace that he was giving to the world. And Paul, in his letter, he says that you need to understand that I am a steward of God's grace. That it's been given to me. And God's grace flows to me so that it can flow through me. He gives you his grace so that it would flow out of you. Now, now let's just think for a second about our relationships. Whether it's in your marriage, the relationship you have with your children, the relationship at work, the relationships in church, the relationships you have with people in your neighborhood. Would they see something different? If your relationships followed this pattern of grace received, which leads us to humility, which leads us to vulnerability, which leads us to give and steward God's grace. When those arguments occur, when those divisions pop up, would you handle them a little bit different with a different perspective? But that scares us so badly because we want to control what others see. We want to protect ourselves. I have a really good friend in Cleburne who is a counselor. And occasionally I would get to a point where I would just sit down and talk to him about what was going on in life. And I always had this question that I followed up everything with. 
is that normal? And Russell would always say, hey, hey, we're not talking about normal. We're talking about you. But there's this sense in us that we want to know, are, are we okay? That this, this is where we are, and this is what we're feeling. Yes. But where you are is not where God wants you to be. In this relationship, that you are the sum total of your relationships. He says, if you want to have good relationships, your relationships mirror Christ. They mirror the cross. They mirror his life. So in Philippians, Paul again Starting in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, and being born in likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That, that Christ in his life, modeled these healthy relationships. And a part of every single one of this, these relationships was the grace that he received, the humility that he showed, the vulnerability that he showed, and the grace that he gave. And I promise you, it is something, if we can change our perspective and we can become contemplative people who are constantly seeking God's will and constantly allowing him to change and transform who we are. That our relationships will start to look more like his. And so as we kind of close this morning, just simply a question. As we look to 2030 and our vision of who we want to be as a people, as we exalt Christ, encourage one another, and engage our neighbor, can you imagine what would happen in our neighborhoods? Could you imagine what would happen in this neighborhood politically? racially, religiously, if we began to exemplify this DNA of relationships in every aspect of our life, 
And if we could find ourselves as we started to fall into pride and shame and we started to kind of push back from that vulnerability, to push back from that humility, to, to want to keep grace in for ourselves and hold it on, on to our grudges, if we could simply step outside of that and step back to the cross and allow that to be what transforms and shapes who we are. Can you imagine what it would do in this world? See, when we talk about unity, we're not just simply talking about what happens in here. We're talking about how do we as Christ church, of which he is the head, how do we submit to his will in working together with him to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Father, today, help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to see his transformative cross, to see it as something that shapes and defines who we are. And Father, as we follow Jesus, make us more humble. Make us more vulnerable with one another. Make us stewards of your grace so that the world will know that they are loved by their Father in heaven. And Father, that you have called them. You have called them to be your children. Those that were made in your image. that speak, that breathe with the very breath of God in their lungs. Father, help us to be your people in this world. And Father, to live with your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, there is the invitation for those of you to come to enter into Christ, to be in Christ, as Paul continually talks about, to enter into that relationship through baptism. We're also going to have ministry staff and shepherds around the back of the auditorium. We would love to do whatever we could to help you as you follow Jesus. So come while we stand and sing.